You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Are the Bible and science compatible? Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org. Science endeavours to better understand all aspects of the world. Atmosphere, weather, physical, animal, birds and fish and life in its various forms. And then also human life. While the Bible claims to be a divinely inspired record of the Christian God's eternal plan, starting with physical creation in all its aspects, followed by the formation of life of mankind, its direction how to live, and the consequences if unheeded, at least for the first 4,000 years. This discourse endeavours to illustratively explain that the Bible gives meaning and purpose towards a future, perfect and sustainable world while science is understanding by observation of the organisms of natural, physical and human matter and their outcomes. So this afternoon's topic is, are the Bible and science compatible? More and more people are claiming that science has actually made the Bible outdated. They claim that the idea of the Bible and science are actually mutually exclusive, they're diametrically opposed. It's as if you're talking about logic on one hand with science and faith and belief and nothing that can be proven uh, on the other hand with the Bible. They speak about science being the rational one and the Bible being irrational. And so you have all these these claims. And so that's why we're we're tackling the topic this afternoon. Are the Bible and science compatible? Can they go together or are they actually different? Are they mutually exclusive? And we make a a distinction here that it's the Bible and science as opposed to just religion and science in general. We as Christadelphians are a Bible-based community, uh, which is different to so many of the other religions which might have their own holy books, their own uh, things, teachings that they follow. And there are many different religions and there's pantheons of gods from Egypt and Greece in the past as well that that aren't worshipped anymore either. So what we're looking at really is just the Bible, the, the, the Christian holy book, some people might call it, and seeing whether or not that is compatible with science, because that's all that we as Christadelphians base our belief on. So the first question when it comes to the Bible and science is, well, what do scientists say about it? Do they, do they agree with the Bible? Do they agree with belief in God or, or do they disagree? says, I am against religion because it teaches us not to be satisfied with understanding the world. Uh, so an opposite viewpoint to Albert Einstein there. Both of them scientists, both of them looking at science and both of them coming to two different conclusions. Here's another one, Sir Isaac Newton, a physicist, mathematician, uh, came up with uh, the laws of motion, probably most famous for. What does he say? He says, don't doubt the creator because it is inconceivable that accidents alone could be the controller of this universe. 
So here's a scientist, famous scientist, came up with many discoveries. He also believed in their creator. He believed in a God. Again, another one. On the other hand, we have this German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, probably uh, more well-known for his quote, I believe, which says about what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But this is another one of his. Is man one of God's blunders or is God one of man's blunders? So very clearly against the idea of God and, and doesn't believe in a God. Here we have Alistair McGrath. He is the author, in fact, of what there's a book called The Dawkins Delusion. Because Richard Dawkins, one of the scientists we, uh, we just mentioned, uh, wrote, has written a number of books on evolution, including The, the Blind Watchmaker, uh, The God Delusion as well. And Alistair McGrath is the author of the response to Dawkins's book, The God Delusion, and his response was called The Dawkins Delusion. But what does he say? He is a, an historian, a scientist, an apologist, and he says, atheism, I began to realize, rested on a less than satisfactory evidential basis. The arguments that had once seemed bold, decisive, and conclusive increasingly turned out to be circular, tentative, and uncertain. And this is some of what we're going to see today, is the fact that it can seem that science is so certain, so set, that you couldn't possibly entertain the idea of religion or even the Bible. But in fact, they're not quite as bold, decisive, and conclusive as it might seem at the outset. A couple more quotes. Here we have a Stephen Hawking, theoretical physicist, cosmologist. He says, one can't prove that God doesn't exist, but science makes God unnecessary. He was very much for the idea of, of atheism, one that said that science could push out the existence of God. Why would you need the existence of God in your life when you had science? And a final one, this one's Lord Kelvin, the mathematician, the physicist, the engineer, famous for the Kelvin scale of absolute temperatures. And here he said, if you study science deep enough and long enough, it will force you to believe in God. So what do we, conclusion do we come from from all of that? Well, the fact is that scientists don't agree on whether or not there is a God. Science hasn't conclusively disproven the Bible at all. You can't say that all scientists are atheists and, and throw them all in the same box. And so if anyone claims to understand science or study science, well, they have to be an atheist. No, science hasn't disproven the Bible. And while some of those quotes might be more modern, some maybe slightly less modern, stretching back maybe over 50 years, then all the key scientific and philosophical figures that we just considered are, are very influential in science as we understand it now. If it was so clear, would Einstein really have believed in a God? Would Newton? Would Kelvin? Men that have made huge steps in the advancement of modern science. And so we do come to this conclusion that the debate isn't set. The answer isn't that clear. The fact is that science hasn't thrown out the Bible completely or at all, is what we're going to argue. And that is seen in the fact that there is not a consensus among scientists. So we come really to consider, well, what is science then? If you're going to ask what's science, is it compatible with the Bible? Well, what is science? On the left, we have the Cambridge Dictionary definition. The science is the knowledge from, 
or the careful study of the structure and behavior of the physical world, things you can see, especially by watching, measuring, and doing experiments, and the developments of theories to describe the results of these activities. Science, as you can see on the right, the scientific method, is a continuous, it's an iterative process. You make the observation, you identify the problem, uh, and once you know what the problem is, well, then you, you conduct the research around it. And then once you've done the research around the potential problem, you develop what you think might be the outcome, might be likely based on the research you've done, which is called the hypothesis, and then design the experiment to test that hypothesis. Is it true or is it not? And then after you've designed the experiment, you collect, you analyze the results, did it meet the hypothesis, and then you construct a conclusion. And once you've constructed the conclusion, you then make a further observation and you carry on doing the research and carry on, which is why it is, it is a circle. So you experiment based on what you can see in the world around you, and you also can conduct uh, various experiments or various uh, studies based on previous data as well. The experiments test what you think might happen, and, and so the theories that are developed based on these conclusions do change based on new evidence as well. That is science. What about the Bible? What is the Bible? Well, this is again Cambridge Dictionary definition that the holy book of the Christian religion consisting of the Old and New Testaments or the holy book of the Jewish religion consisting of the law, the prophets and the writings. It is a holy book and it doesn't claim to be a commentary on science. It doesn't claim to be some sort of a profound scientific textbook. No, actually what the Bible claims in uh, 2 Timothy 3 and verses 16 and 17 is that it is the word of God, that God breathed it out. He gave it. And, and why did he give it? Well, he gave it so that a person might understand doctrine, might understand the, the teachings of God, the truth about God, for reproof and correction that, that God can, through his word, the Bible, tell men and women how they should be living, how, how best for them to live, and also instruction in righteousness, the things that are right before God. That is, that is the purpose of the Bible. It, the purpose of the Bible is not to make a person wise concerning the science of this world. Far more, it's about making a person mature before God, understanding more about God rather than understanding about science. And in fact, the Bible says that God wrote it and that God created all things around us, all things that we can see. So God designed everything that science can make an observation of, that anything that science can measure was created by God. Surely he knows it far better than any scientist in this modern age. Are science and the Bible compatible? Well, we, we can note that actually there are a number of similarities between science and the Bible that are really the fundamentals, you could say, of science and of the Bible. For instance, science intends to understand. It wants to know how, how is it that the world around us is constructed? Why is it that the wind blows from north to south or east to west? Why is it that you get rainfall more in certain areas or in other areas? Why is it that the smoking is likely to cause <coughs> lung cancer? <coughs> Timely cough, hey. And the Bible is similar. The Bible 
gives meaning and purpose as well. It's, it, it's intending to understand, but rather than just understand the world around, it's intending to understand the meaning and purpose of us, of, of our life. Why are we here upon this planet? And so both are intending to understand more about, about what we can see and what we can do. Science also describes the complexity around us. It seeks to delve into in-depth knowledge about whatever you can, whatever you can see, physics, biology, maths, chemistry. It's describing the, the many complexities and, and the more you research, the more you realize you don't know and the more gaps you have. And then the more research you do to fill those gaps, obviously the more you realize you, you still don't know. And so the Bible is also similar in the fact that it does talk about the complexity of the world around us. It, it talks about this the snow and the frost. It talks about uh, the, the wind. It talks about the rain. It talks about all the many natural processes that we can see around us. And what the Bible does, it actually attributes the complexity to an intelligent design. So whereas science is purely understanding the here and now, the, complex, the Bible takes it a step further and gives the reason why all this is present. Another similarity is the fact that science uses models or samples to represent a larger group. So for instance, if you want to know how many people in Australia drink coffee, you don't do a survey of all the millions of people in Australia. That's probably going to be a, a large undertaking, cost far too much uh, for the data that you'll probably receive. So what you do is you take a sample of the population. You maybe take 10,000 people instead and, and ask 10,000 people how, whether or not they drink coffee. And that, that is representative of the large group and so when you take that sample you might want to make sure that you take people that are from old and young uh, to try and get a, a better sample and the bible is similar so the bible gives us faithful examples or, or sample of the faithful believers which all believers down the ages can relate to it it makes reference to kings it makes reference to shepherds it makes reference to doctors it makes reference to people who were tent makers all of these people are faithful examples which believers throughout history can relate to. Models and samples in a similar way are seen in the Bible. Another similarity is that science seeks to improve human life. Surely that's the point of understanding more about the world around us. Uh, maybe knowing more about physics means you can have inventions such as the mobile phone for communication or understanding more about, about medicine, about the workings of the body, means that you can prolong life more. And the Bible is similar. The Bible promises to improve your life now and eternally. So both have similarities, you can see that. But there are also differences. The Bible is, we've said this, and we'll say it again, the Bible is no scientific textbook. The Bible does ask for belief. Now, the Bible doesn't ask us to believe something that's illogical and irrational without any reason to believe. And such reasons to believe could include prophecy, in which the Bible foretells the future ahead of its time. And there are a number of prophecies that were written hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, that have come true to the exact detail, which gives us a reason to trust what it says. History and archaeology also are various means of uh, validating the people, the places, the events 
that the Bible talks around. And so we do have reasons to believe, but it doesn't give us everything. For instance, it doesn't explain the how always, like the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't explain how was it that Christ managed to heal the lame man? Did he reverse the muscle paralysis? No, we don't know. All we know is he was lame and then he could walk. The Bible explains more about, about the why. Why was it that Christ was doing it? Why was it that the, the man couldn't walk? It was a result of mortality. It was a result of human nature, uh, the effects of, of sin and death. But the Bible doesn't always explain the how because it's not a scientific textbook. It doesn't need to know the exact mechanisms of how something worked, how a treatment worked when it came to the miracle. The Bible does make statements about nature. It talks about how the, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament his handiwork. But it doesn't give us a detailed knowledge of necessarily all the workings of nature. It doesn't tell us how a flower grows and, and buds and pollinates and fertilizes and all those other things. No, instead, it makes statements in which we can be in awe of the God that created everything. The Bible does use analogies and metaphors. So, for instance, it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ sometimes as a, as a lamb, but we know he was a person. But it's, it's talking about him as a lamb because he was a sacrifice, just like under the law of Moses in the Old Testament. There were sacrifices of lambs. But while it uses those analogies and metaphors, while it doesn't always have a literal meaning, it doesn't accommodate worldviews. Because it was the thought of the time that the person wrote it doesn't mean that they incorporated it all and agreed with it all in the Bible. Some of those might be analogies and metaphors instead. And the Bible does say that God created all things. However, it does not say that a person needs a scientific background to grasp things like creation. They don't need to understand it because creation is, is very simple. God said and it was done. Genesis 1 to 2 is not some in-depth account of how each cell was created. In fact, we don't even come across the concept of the, of the cell, the simple, um, simple yet complex cell. No, the Bible asks that people believe that God created all things. And you don't need some sort of complex background in order to grasp that simplicity. Though we say that the Bible is, is not a scientific textbook, there are certain statements that the Bible makes which, which agree with science. So actually, uh, there is a compatibility there. For instance, the earth in space. Job 26 and verse 7 says, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. And this is very different, actually, to some of the ideas of the ancient world. Job written uh, a number uh, of hundreds of years um, before Christ. And, and in fact, many people believe things like the diagram seen on the screen, that the earth was actually a dome on the back of elephants and the elephants were on the back of a, a giant tortoise. Or the earth is not suspended on the, the, the shoulders of titans. All of these things were, were actually not mentioned in the Bible, but the Bible says that God 
but hung the earth upon nothing. And it's argued that it was Aristotle around the time of the birth of Christ that, that realized the earth was round. And he may have guessed the fact that the earth was actually suspended, but really, surely the only time mankind knew that the earth was truly hung upon nothing was when they got those satellite photos, which showed that the earth was literally suspended in space. And Job was well, well before then. Here's another example of the water cycle. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 7 talks about the water cycle and how all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. And so this is a fairly modern understanding of water. How the fact is that the rivers run into the sea and then the sea evaporates and, and con condensates in, in the clouds and then you have the precipitation as you can see in that diagram there. And how there's a cycle, that thither they return again. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 7 is talking about a cycle and it was, it was allegedly around 1580 or so before uh, it was actually documented that someone had thought up this idea of the water cycle. Ecclesiastes in the, in the time of Solomon, 2,000 two years before any man-made uh, man discovery of the water cycle. And so we see that the, the Bible is actually accurate to modern science more than the science that was proclaimed at the time it was written. And though we say that the Bible is, is not a, a scientific textbook to give us lots of information about the world around us, it, do, it does speak of specifics. It speaks of, for instance, the specific constant. what we know and what we can learn of the world around us. So we might ask, well, is the word science in the Bible? Can we come across it? Is it in there? Um, what does the Bible say about it? Well, certainly in the King James Version, in the uh, slightly older version of the Bible, we do have the word science. Here it is, uh, one of the two occasions in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 4, where it talks about Daniel and his three friends and, and the princes, and it says of them that, that they were children, they were actually quite young at this point, in whom was no blemish, but well-favoured and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science, and such as had the ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and tongue of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, the ancient Babylonians, uh, those are the people that, that Daniel was amongst at that point. And in the original Hebrew, the Hebrew being the, the original language of the Old Testament, that, that word science can mean the intelligence or the consciousness, knowledge, science, thought. So here is Daniel being taught science, knowledge, very much similar to today in, in instead in an ancient Babylonian university, uh, probably the, the royal ancient Babylonian university, uh, because it was, it was the king's palace, the king's learning. He was with the, uh, the academics of the day, learning and appreciating all that, that they understood about the world around them. And we find actually in another translation that in the ESV, it translates science as learning, another, another version of, of the same verse. 
So it's the learning, it's the, it's the, the knowledge that they had at that point, it's the general consensus of society at that point. But what's the point we're making about science, about learning, about knowledge and Daniel is that Daniel could worship God and still learn about science, about knowledge, about what was the, the learning of the day. They didn't have to conflict. And yes, modern science has changed. It's very different from what they taught in ancient Babylon. But he still could make observations about the world around him and have that agree with what he knew about God, the creator of the universe. And yes, in those days, they did have ancient gods. They did believe that, that actually they came from whichever pantheon of gods they, they worshipped. And that's where they thought the world around them came from. But Daniel could appreciate through the, the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, through what he knew about God, that, that God was the one true creator, the same, same God that we can believe in today. And so the learning that Daniel went through, the, the association with the academics of his, his world, didn't have to conflict with his belief in God and belief in the Bible as they had then. There is another reference to science as well in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 20, where Paul is writing to Timothy, a person who was much younger than him, but he was very close to, where he says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. And the word science here, again, is a similar idea to our Hebrew word, but instead, because it's from the New Testament, it's, it's the Greek word, the Greek word gnosis, and it's from the idea of knowing or knowledge of science. Um, and, and this is a few hundred years later than the Old Testament quote in Daniel. And again, we have a couple of other translations of the word science. Here's the ESV. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, uh, or the RV as well. Um, o Timothy, guard that which is committed unto thee, turning away from the profane babblings and oppositions of the knowledge, which is falsely so-called. So other versions use the word knowledge uh, as opposed to, to science, but the point is it's about someone who is the scientists of the, the day, the people who, who knew more than other people, the people who could be looked up to because of their, their vast knowledge and appreciation of the world. And Paul is saying that it's actually falsely called knowledge. It's falsely called science. And the Greek word gnosis uh, leads many people to, to connect the Gnostics uh, of the, the early centuries uh, and they had certain beliefs. For instance, one belief was that the material world is bad and the spirit world is good, that the material world is under the control of evil, ignorance, uh, or nothingness. And while the Bible does speak about that which is, which is carnal that which, and that which is spirit, the, the two different uh, warring entities that exist, what we would naturally want to do and what God tells us to do, God makes it very clear that the, the evil is our own human nature what we naturally choose to do. It's not the fact that we're under control of something that's evil or ignorant. No, it's, it's our own personal choice. We also have the fact uh, that they believed in a divine spark trapped in some, but not all humans. They also believed that salvation was through a secret knowledge 
by which individuals came to know themselves and their origin and their destiny. And they also believed that since a good God couldn't have created an evil world, that there must have been another God there. So what in fact we have with the Gnostics here is they're combining what was the scientific and, and uh, philosophical ideas of the day and combining it with, with some of the religious ideas, with some of the, the Christian ideas, and coming up with, with Gnosticism. And hence the ideas of immortal souls came out, that divine spark, the immortal soul, which is not an idea that is taught in the Bible. They talk about secret knowledge as, as if, you know, there are only a few philosophers that could really understand and appreciate and, and know this. Whereas, in fact, we know that God's word is open. It's plain. God wants all to read it, to come to that knowledge. They All they need to do is choose to open the pages of the Bible. And just like the scientists of today that, that try and come up with many other ways in which the world could have been created, uh, so the Gnostics were similar. Uh, surely it's not really God, it's, it's someone else because it's evil, it's inferior. And so no wonder Paul says that this is, this is science falsely so-called. It's, it's knowledge that's been combined with, with paganism, which is combined with religion, and, and you come up with, with Gnosticism as a, as a birth child of all these different ideas coming together. It's not something that is, that is true. It's falsely called knowledge. It's falsely called science. And so we come to this conclusion that not all scientific, scientific knowledge is true. And so we cannot jump to conclusions that there is any incompatibility with the Bible. There's not too many negatives in that sentence. It's, it's basically saying that a large part of science is actually identifying where the knowledge gaps are that science is, is that iterative process we saw earlier, testing what is already known, trying to find out what is not known, and, and changing those conclusions, changing those theories, so that it might better fit all that is currently known, or all that has, has, been, has been recently found out. And so often, uh, a large part of science is finding those gaps, because you can research those gaps. And so what science is really doing is, is constantly affirming that it doesn't know it all, that it needs to do further research, it needs to do further, further study in order to find out what is the truth of the matter. And here's just a, a couple of examples of, of how things have changed over time. Uh, this one's quite an interesting one, uh, the history of the atom, uh, how, how it's very different uh, through from 1803 to, to 1926, which is probably far closer to what we appreciate and understand it now. So initially they thought it was a, more of a solid sphere. Uh, the next one's a great, great name, the plum pudding model uh, with the electrons, which are negatively charged particles in the atom uh, being dispersed among the atom, just like uh, sultanas or something in a, in a plum pudding. And then you have other ideas of nuclear models and planetary model and quantum models. But, but the point is that it changed over time what someone might have laughed if you'd proposed the quantum model back in 1803, but 123 years later, that was the accepted model of the time. And so the, the theories that they're coming up with, the models they're coming up with is just based on the current scientific understanding, based on the evidence from which they draw conclusions. Here, here's another one, uh, change in, uh, in the way that people understand disease over time. That one on the left is, is representing the four humours, something that came about in the time of uh, around Hippocrates, so Greek era, which has carried through much of the Middle Ages, which is why you have uh, things like bleeding 
with leeches and other things because one of the four humors is blood. The others are phlegm and black bile and yellow bile. It sounds awfully pleasant, doesn't it? But the point is that for a long period of time, they believed that it was the imbalance of the four humors that caused disease. And then you have Louis Pasteur. This is actually a poster which is saying that Louis Pasteur was a, was a creation scientist. But he came up with the germ theory of disease. He, he said, no, instead that there are tiny microorganisms which actually cause disease, which we now understand as bacteria and viruses and fungi and all those other many wonderful groups. And this instead is, is how we understand disease now. So things change over time. Science said at one point that it was the four humors and another point that it was germs. It does change over time. But now we come to what might be considered a, one of the pivotal points of the, the science versus the Bible debate, and that is the theory of evolution. Because the Bible does teach intelligent design, not evolution. But what do we know about evolution? Well, we know that, that science uh, says that it develops theories based on the result of observation and experimentation. And so when it comes to the, the theory of evolution, some people have looked and said that because the chimpanzee is similar to humans in terms of DNA, in terms of the fact that they have opposable thumbs, for instance, that they said that one species progressed to the next species. And because of the similarity that there must be the development from one to the next. And that is one conclusion that a person can make from, from those observations. But another observer might say that, well, they're very similar because they have similar functions that they have to perform. Monkeys have to swing through trees and, and hold on to branches, just like we have to hold on to, to things in our life in order to survive. And the similarities are more because of similar habitats and were made in a similar way because they were all created by the same being, the same deity, the same God. Just like cars, for instance, might look similar because they're from the same manufacturer. And so much, yes, so much of our DNA is similar. Uh, this is sometimes used as an argument for evolution. Why have we got, why do we share so much DNA even with things from the sea, like the whale? But the fact is that we all have to live on this earth. And so there are many similar molecular processes in all of these instances. We all need energy from somewhere. We all have to gain energy from our food. Often it's very similar food as well. So why are we surprised that we have to digest our food in the same way, that we have to absorb our food in the same way, that we gain energy from our food in the same way, those same chemical processes? And although many claim that evolution is pivotal to science, it's a pivotal basis, some people say, that, that so much of science you understand, you have to see the evolutionary background. Actually, you don't need evolution. You can understand the world around you without delving into what might, be, might have been the history, as, as some scientists claim. And so... Really, there are two interpretations of what can be seen, you could, you could call it. The, the, on one hand, people see the natural world, they make those observations, and as a, res, as a result, a conclusion they draw is that one species progressed from the next to the next to the next. But another interpretation, equally valid, 
is the fact that they're all similar because they come from the same hand, the same designer. And we make the point now that evolution driven by random chance does not give purpose. Only God gives purpose. And here we have a couple of examples of, of natural selection, which they use as an evidence for evolution. Look, this is evolution in action, they say. And because evolution can't be tested, can't be observed, because it, it took millions of years, so you can't, they claim, so you can't actually design an experiment that would last a few million years and draw some conclusions. They have to find current examples of natural selection. Um, just like, for instance, Darwin and his finches on the Galapagos Islands and the different sized beaks and other things from which the concept grew. Well, well, here we have the example of the peppered moth. And they use this and say, well, during the Industrial Revolution, there was a change in which moths survived. Natural selection being the fact that those with beneficial genes, with beneficial character traits, survive while the others die out. And so that gene is preserved and carries on. And then you have another mutation in the gene. And if it's beneficial, then that species lives and carries on. And, and the peppered moth is an example they use because they say 1848, there were many light colored moths, about 95%. But then when the industrial revolution came and everything was covered in soot and dirt and pollution, then in fact, you see a swing to the opposite because these darker colored moths would be more easily described on buildings and on trees. And so they would be less picked off by predators and you have 98% uh, of moths being, being dark colored uh, about 50 years later. And then when you have the Clean Air Act and change it all again, you, you see a swing back to the light. But these are all still moths. So the example they're using of natural selection is not the change from, from one species to the next. Sometimes and, and others didn't at other times. They're still moths. There was not. in nature uh, which which does change and doesn't necessarily show that a moth turned into another flying creature and science makes can make observations uh, retrospectively we can say that as well and the the retrospective the, the looking back on history those sort of observations are using the fossil record. So they try and piece the, the fossil record together. And we know that, well, there are some missing, missing links in, in the fossil record. And when you look at any study retrospectively, you need accurate records. You need complete records in order to make sure you don't have any bias. That if you have only a, a small number of, of, of the records, then you might come to some conclusion which is actually quite wrong because you don't have the full picture. It doesn't account for all the confounders as well. When people are trying to understand what happened, according to them, a few million years ago, then, well, there's going to be a lot of missing confounders, such as carbon-14 dating, for instance. There's a number of presumptions that, that presume that the decay of the carbon-14 has been consistent over time. 
that the the, num the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere now is the same as, as, as it always was. So they, they make these presumptions without actually knowing. Uh, another example of, of what they call evolution observed, which is actually microevolution, not macroevolution, the micro being on the small scale, uh, macro being the change from species to species. Um, the microevolution, which is more changes within a genus or class of animals. Um, instead, instead, this is talking uh, about individual species that can have small changes. And here we have, for instance, the development of a, a strain of resistant bacteria to certain antibiotics. So antibiotic resistance, uh, where you have change in the DNA of bacteria. Uh, in fact, bacteria can chain, can swap their DNA with, with other bacteria, which is kind of cool. Um, but they're still all bacteria. They haven't suddenly changed into a virus. They haven't suddenly changed into something that's much bigger, like a, like a fly, for instance. They're all still bacteria. Another couple of points, and then we'll draw to a conclusion. But this one is about demons. So some argue that the Bible accommodates the, the views of the world around them, such as the idea of demon possession in the New Testament. And therefore they say that well, the Bible is opposite to science because we know that demon possession isn't something that's real. It's not something that's true. It's, it's something that, that was just a, a phase, a fad in the past. But what do we find out about the truth of, of demons and demon possession? Well, on the left there, we have, for instance, an example of, of where it talks about Christ healing those who were possessed, it says, with devils or demons, is another version. And it says, Matthew 4, verse 24, and his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those that were possessed with devils or demons, those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And we find, in fact, that these, these demons, these devils, were the false gods of the time. And the Bible does call them false. It does call them made up. First Corinthians 10, for instance, is talking about offering the, the table of idols, which it also calls the table of devils, and, and says it is not such a thing. It doesn't exist. And there on the right, we have a diagram taken uh, from, the, from the book quoted at the bottom, which talks about what is the, the a potential mechanism of, of possession, demon possession. Why is it that some people thought that they really were being possessed by the devil? And you can see that there's it's a number of different inputs, stimuli for the brain, including the use of drugs, which cause the point of brain exhaustion and then accepting any information open to it and leading to what they might call demon possession. And so this demon possession was actually associated with pagan ceremonies in which people would act in a way that made them look very similar to those with the mental illnesses that Jesus healed. And we actually know today that the use of certain drugs causes chemical imbalances in the brain, which are similar to those chemical imbalances seen in some mental illnesses. But when you look at Matthew 4 and verse 24, it's not including demon possession uh, amongst the list, uh, a list of um, out-of-body experiences or anything. No, it, it's actually amongst the list of, of sicknesses, of diseases. It's something that Christ healed them from. 
makes while sometimes it does talk about the devil or the demon being cast out it's also making a point that it's it, they've been healed that it was a disease and they were healed and so the language that they could understand was to draw this comparison with what was happening in certain pagan worship ceremonies in which they thought they were possessed by a demon and comparing it and seeing similar ideas and similar similar symptoms and signs in the people that had these mental illnesses. And, and we can match our knowledge of, of historical demon worship, of, of medicine, to work out what really happened in these healings. We can see that there is a comparison that can be made between those who were possessed with devils and, and diseases like schizophrenia or epilepsy today and if demon possession was such a big thing well surely the more of the bible would talk about it not just the gospels uh, it's specifically the gospels that talk about it in which it says that christ healed these people it is simply a, a disease and so it's it's not any different from the understanding we have today it's just using a, a different analogy an analogy that the people at the time could understand an analogy we can still understand today So is the Bible unscientific when it talks about demon possession? No, it's not. And if there are other examples that people bring, bring to bear, but in fact, the Bible stands up to its criticisms when you look into them. The Bible is it's not unscientific. It doesn't teach things that are scientifically incorrect. In a final slide, penultimate slide, here we have Paul, the apostle. He encounters two groups of what might be called philosophers or scientists of his day. Greeks, uh, these were the Stoics and the Epicureans, Acts 17 and verse 18. And it was particularly the Epicureans on the right there that believed in the things that you can experience with your five senses. Very similar to the idea of science today. What can you see? What can you touch? What can you handle? What can you, can, can you observe? What can you measure? They had different views on, on how you should live your life in accordance with that. But still, they were the, the academics of the day. But the point we want to make when we refer to this encounter is the fact that Paul still had to expound the one true God to them. If you look in Acts chapter 17, it, it speaks about a God that they ignorantly worshipped. And Paul explains that, that God uh, is the creator of all things and that also that he commands that all people repent, that they change their ways, that there is this change. And so while the Bible and science are compatible, the Bible is the ultimate authority and not science. You can't glean from, un, from an understanding of God from just the world outside. It's not some sort of sense of spirituality which you can gain from looking at nature, which from looking at a flower, you can't understand how God wants to be worshipped. And this is why Paul had to explain it to the scientists of the day, that the Bible was the ultimate authority and not science, even though they had great understanding of all the philosophies uh, of many different things. In fact, it says that they, they like nothing more but to discuss something new, something different, some novel idea. No, Paul had to expound to them more perfectly what God, who God was and what he wanted.
And so we come to the conclusion that the Bible and science are compatible. And here's Romans 1 and verse 20, which says, For his, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The things that we can observe in the world around us teach us of God's power. <laughs> they demonstrate his, his creative genius, we can call it. But we do need the Bible. We need the Bible to have that specific revelation of God. Only the Bible teaches us the saving truth. We are not illogical or irrational if we read and trust the Bible. We can still understand science and read the Bible and believe the Bible. The Bible has not been disproven. It is still living. It is still relevant today. And we do need it. But we need to also be reassured that science has not disproven the Bible, that it can be compatible. And there are multiple reasons, which we've covered a few, as to why that is the case. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.